Leviticus here, we want to jump back to Exodus 32, right? And we've spent, actually, I mean, several sermons in Exodus 32. And, and there's a reason for this. I mean, this is a really important moment. All of the Pentateuch has been leading to this moment at the mountain. And the rest of the Pentateuch will be a, leading away from the mountain. It's equal, both sides, just from a literary perspective, the amount of writing and words. Everything was leading up to Sinai. Everything's leading away from Sinai. Like this moment with Israel at Sinai is really significant for understanding who God is and understanding who God's people are. And for us to understand the book of Leviticus, and before we start getting into the various laws and sacrificial systems, because Leviticus, like George was preaching the other week, doesn't have a lot of narrative in it. There's only a couple little snippets of narrative. The rest are really laws and instructions. So to have that context, we need to kind of jump back into narrative to see where this comes from. Because the book of Leviticus is written, it's things given to the Levites. That's what Leviticus is, to the Levites. So we have to understand, well, why all of a sudden are the Levites, why is one tribe of Israel getting all of these commands from the Lord rather than all of the people of Israel getting these commands from the Lord? And if we remember... Right, when, when George and Deirdre have both preached out of this passage before out of Exodus 32, I mean, God's intention for his people was always to bring them to himself. And he told them, I will make you a nation of priests. I will make you this holy and distinct nation, and you'll be a blessing to the world. And they were all gathered at the mountain, right? And God told them when the trumpet sounded, you're going to all come up the mountain, and I will make you priests. But the people were afraid. And they trembled, and they said, Moses, you go. We don't want to. We want you to go before us. You should be the one who talks to God. We don't want to go. And you have then this instant creation of, instead of a nation of priests, we're going to have a nation with priests. And that's really where we get the, the Levites coming into play. Now, earlier in chapter 32, and I mean, feel free if you have a Bible or you know, on your phone, if you want to look all over Exodus 32, you know, the reading was just this final piece, but, and it's a well-known story of Exodus 32, but if we remember why this, is so, this chapter is so significant, right, this is the incident with the golden calf. The Levites do have a big moment in Exodus 32. At the very end, they're going through the camp killing people, like Tana just read, but at the beginning of Exodus 32, they're also creating a golden calf. And worshiping a foreign god, right? You have this direct rejection of God and his promise, a direct rejection of the first two commandments, right? If you remember, God gave the commandments to his people. You should have no other gods before me. You should make no images of any other gods. And then instantly, the people do the exact opposite. They make an image and they make another god and they say, right, this, Aaron, Aaron does it. The, the brother of Moses, the head of the Levi, of this whole tribe of the Levites, makes this false god and tells the people, this is your god who brought you out of Egypt, who delivered you. Just a complete rejection of who God is. And as the narrative unfolds, right, Moses is up on the mountain while all of this was taking place. And Deirdre preached through this, this narrative, so we won't have to spend a lot of time in the golden calf narrative. But while they're worshiping that golden calf and engaging in all kinds of terrible sins and adultery, and it's a really dark episode in Israel's history down there at the bottom of the mountain. Moses is on the mountain with God. And God warns Moses while he's still on the mountain. He tells them, right, the people are a stiff-necked people. They have rejected me. They have turned away from me. 
and Moses intercedes. Right? Moses hasn't seen yet the scene at the bottom of the hill or the mountain. Right? But he hears from the Lord that they have rejected him and they're doing terrible things down there. But Moses intercedes on their behalf and he says, no, right? I mean, please don't turn away from these people. Be the God who you said you were. Fulfill the promise that you said you would fulfill so that we can be this nation and a blessing to the other nations. And then Moses comes down the hill, right? And sees that scene in the camp. I mean, it's hard for us, I mean, it's easy for us, I guess, to kind of gloss over narrative and just be like, oh, okay, yeah, they're all drunk and engaged in this orgy and doing terrible things. And okay, yeah, there's going to be some problems. But if you, the, the gravity of the situation for Moses would have been intense. He has lost the people of God. He was given a charge from the Lord. He was, he was given these people to lead them to the mountain, to lead them to God, to lead them to the presence of him. I mean, this, this, was, this was his job. This was his calling. And he has lost them. It doesn't sound like some of them are still being faithful in worshiping God. Right? The text indicates that all of them have given up Yahweh and are worshiping a false god and engaging in sin and immorality. What will Moses do? Right? And he just loses it. Right? His anger boils over, which again, he was warned by God, but you do, when you see it, he can't control it anymore, and he intervenes. You know, there's a lot of questioning then about, like, was this a wise decision or not a decision? I mean, what would, how could you get control again of the people after they have really run loose? How are you going to bring them back in? And Moses' plan, right, as he stands there is, you know, all who are for the Lord come to me. And it's his tribe that comes to him, the Levites, who are also the ones who are responsible for the creation of the calf. But they come to Moses, and Moses sets them loose in the camp to reestablish order with a sword. And they, they strike down thousands of people to reestablish order, to reestablish the nation. And it works. It's a, it's a really difficult kind of picture to get our heads around. And a sad one in a lot of ways when you think about what the people were supposed to be or where this was supposed to go. And then here you have the Levites going through the camp and killing. And afterwards, Moses tells them, right, you are now this priesthood. You will now be this holy priesthood, and you have a priesthood that really starts with blood on their hands, literally, with the taking of people's lives. You will now be our priests and go between us and the Lord. At the end of this incident, there is, again, some righteous anger and disappointment in God and in Moses, and God again tells Moses, let's just be done right? Let's start over. Let's pick a new people, because clearly this people are not going to be able to do this. And Moses intercedes again on their behalf. He interceded up on the mountain before he had seen the scene, and now after he has seen the scene, he intercedes yet again. And this time, he begs the Lord to forgive his people, and he says, if you won't, then blot me out from your book so that they can be in. 
just this incredibly strong position of Moses on behalf of the people. And God's response to Moses' interceding, he tells them, he tells Moses to lead the people to the place that he has told them about, but that he will judge them. The ending of the narrative, it, it is uneasy. You have the establishing of a priesthood. They were supposed to be a nation of priests. Now they're a nation with priests, with this one tribe. And the establishing of that priesthood was not pretty. In fact, it was very ugly and very violent. And you have God forgiving the people, but not fully. But there will be judgment, he says. I will still visit judgment on these people for what they have done. And it is an uneasy walking away from the narrative. And we have to walk away as a reader then, and then this will lead into the book of Leviticus when God now starts to give these commands to this one tribe. But I mean, why? Right? Why would God have called out one tribe of Israel to be the priests? Why would this be God's plan? If, why not all or nothing? Right? If he was going to make a nation of priests, make a nation of priests. Or start over with a new people. Why pull out one of the tribes to make them priests amongst all the people? What's, what is God doing when it comes to this? Well, and it says a few things about God. God's intention, right? And if we're careful readers of the word, we've, we've seen God's intention. God's intention from the very beginning was to create a separate and whole, a holy people. That's what holy really means, just separate, unlike, different, set apart. Not righteous, that's a different understanding, but unlike, different, a different type of people. That was always his intention. I will create, I will have a people who will be unlike all other people, a nation unlike all of the other nations. God's intention from the very beginning of the narrative, he brought them out of slavery, he rescued them from everything to bring them to himself so that they would be set apart. He literally took them out so that they would be different and set apart in his possession and be like him. It was always his intention leading up to the mountain. And here, God is still going to do what he intended to do, but he's going to do it through one particular tribe now. The Levites are going to become a very tangible, physical reminder of God's intention and a means, an instrument by which he's going to instruct the people about this intention, about being holy. So it, on the one hand, reveals that God is not a God who goes back on his promises and his intentions, but continues to push through with them, right? in ways in which we don't always understand or see or can imagine. But the other thing we see about God in the narrative, right, is really he is a God of justice, righteous anger and wrath, but also of profound mercy. I mean, really within the priesthood, with the creation of the priesthood, and we'll look at this especially next week with the idea of atonement and sacrifice, but he is really a God of redemption, the Levites did not deserve to be redeemed as a tribe. I mean, of the tribes, they were the biggest failures. I mean, this is Moses and Aaron. They have failed. 
right? We know this. I mean, if you're in a position of leadership, you understand how this works. The people are rebelling, and <laughs> this is you. This is Moses and Aaron's responsibility. And Aaron completely, right, shirked all of his responsibilities. When he was confronted by Moses, right, he said, oh, I don't know what happened. You know these people. Like, what do you mean, Aaron? You know exactly what happened. You fashioned the calf yourself, right? He, Aaron certainly doesn't deserve redemption. I mean, if we're just to pass out judgment in the narrative of like, which tribes, which characters are the bad guys, which ones are the good guys, who should get punished? The Levites should be punished. But instead, the Levites become a people who will be honored. They're going to become the instruments through which God is going to bring about his plans and purposes within his people. Like, Why would he pick the Levites? And it also provides a start over or redemption for the nation of Israel as well. I mean, like I said, like he certainly could have, and that's why the narrative keeps bringing that up, this option that God keeps presenting. Right? I mean, God was never going to start over, but he wants to present this so that we see his character and his nature, that right, if we were doing this, we would start over. Let's start with a new family, let's start with new people, and do it over. But this is a God of, redem- of redemption. Blood will be spilled for sin, which we see in the narrative. Blood is spilled, and blood will continue to be spilled throughout Leviticus, through the sacrificial systems. But there will be atonement. This atonement, this idea of like fixing what has been broken. There's a way to fix it, right? There has to be, <laughs> right? For the Levites, they have to have some sort of hope that this could get fixed. For Israel, there has to be some sort of hope that what they did could be undone. Otherwise, what's the point of going forward with this God and with this people? Right, we have done, if this is, an un, it, right, this is an unspeakable evil and sin that they did, and if it can't be fixed again, right, they as a people would want to start over too. But this is a God who will provide a way to deal with sin and with the easing and erasing of guilt and shame. I think really what the narrative tells us, so it tells us those things about Yahweh, it tells us these things about God, but it also really tells us a lot about people and us, God's people. And there's a couple, really two big truths that you get out of the narrative that God really wants to instill within the reader for Moses and for us, right? I mean, the truth one, I mean, you read these narratives of the Pentateuch thus far, and the first realization we have to come to is that we are a stiff-necked people. We just really are. We are, we need constant shepherding. Like, we cannot be left to ourselves, the American ideal, really kind of, we give this really self-sufficiency. I mean, it it's really goes against our culture and the modern ideas. I mean, we've talked a lot about philosophy and sociology and a lot of those things. And this modern idea of the self, right? But I mean, it is a lie. You cannot take care of yourself. You just can't. It will not lead to happiness, right? It leads to anxiety, depression, and isolation, you know, me living for myself, doing what I want, anything I want. You know, the book of Ephesians gives the same picture of living in darkness is just doing whatever you feel like doing. It's dark, right? Israel can't be left for any amount of time, right, on their own before they slide into worshiping other gods, doing unspeakable things. And the same is true for us. 
we can't operate on our own. We need priests over us. And there's a reason religions have priests. And there's a, there's a reason this is the case in all kind of world religions. Because we need people over us to care for us and to intercede for us, to fix things when we break them. Because I can't do it on my own. We need help in fixing things. Because that's this other idea within that one. Because we ultimately need atonement. We are a stiff-necked people who need help fixing our lives and fixing the wrongs that we've done and the wrongs that have been done to us. That's what atonement it really is. It's this reparation of a wrong or of an injury, right? To kind of atone for, to make it right, to repair something that has been broken. Moses and the Levites' role from here out is going to be to try to fix what has been broken. Now we'll talk about if they can actually do it and will they do it and they won't, right? Spoiler alert, right? But they're supposed to at least show that it's possible and still the hope of atonement and that there can be someone or people who will atone for us, who will lead us, who will help us to fix what has been broken. It's a real heavy burden on the Levites. I mean, if I was a Levite, I mean, I'm happy that I've been redeemed, that my tribe is not wiped out for the sins of Aaron. But I don't know how thrilled I am, too, about now being the spiritual leader of God's people, knowing what I have done and what confidence do I have in the future of my abilities even to lead these people. The second truth I think we really see about the people of God and about us, right, that first is that we can't do this on our own. We need priests. The second truth is also just how forgetful we are and how forgetful the people of Israel are. There is going to be an incredible need for Israel to be reminded, right? And this, this is going to be through the whole Pentateuch, right? And we'll see this especially in Deuteronomy when we get to that next year in the fall and through the winter. Um, but this idea, right, of like, Hear, O Israel. Remember, O Israel. You should know these things. I mean, it's amazing how forgetful we really are. And, and we know this from experience. We know how forgetful we are. And Israel is incredibly forgetful. And there is a need for us for individual reminders and corporate remembering. And the need for really tangible, physical, daily reminders, which is really what the priesthood is going to provide. This is going to be daily reminder, a physical daily reminder amongst the people of holiness and redemption, of atonement, of God's plans and purposes. They are not going to be able to live life without seeing this, this situation. This, their whole life now is going to be organized in such a way where they are going to have to remember who God is and remember who they are and their need for atonement their need for a savior, their need to be holy and separate and different. Right? They're gonna, this is, they will see this every day. Not just the people, but also the Levites will be reminded in doing these things and doing these rituals, they will be reminded of who God is and of who they are. So why the priests then? Why this establishment of the priesthood? 
which is really why Leviticus, right? I mean, the priesthood is a reminder and a help to the Levites and a reminder and a help to the people of really reminding the people a physical way because of their, their stiff-neckedness all the way through the Exodus, right? They just will not believe that God is who he said he is and that they are who they, he says they are. Right? They, just, they, they won't. Their conscience won't believe it. Their guilt and their shame over their transgressions, they just can't trust God enough to really think that they could be holy, set apart and different, and like God is calling them to be. Right? They just can't believe it. So God is intervening with the priesthood as a way of reminding them and of helping them to experience on a daily level this picture of who God is, that God is is unlike every other God. God is holy, and he is loving and redemptive. I mean, because what other God does this? No other God does this to his people, for his people. And then it also serves now as a reminder for them of who they are. They are to be unlike all the other nations. No other nations are going to have this type of setup. There's going to be a lot of nations with sacrificial systems, but none with this idea of love and holiness at its center, with redemption as a part of it. They are to be a holy and loving people, unlike every other nation in the world. And that really is Leviticus. As we enter into it here this summer, I mean, that's the message of Leviticus. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. But that idea of love God, love others, love, the, love your neighbor that Jesus quotes in the New Testament, that's Leviticus he's quoting. Leviticus is the most quoted book of the Bible in the New Testament. Jesus quotes Leviticus more than anything else because it's incredibly strong on this emphasis of you are to be unlike every other people. You are to be my people. You will look different than the nations because you have a God that is unlike every other God. They are to be called holy. And they will go into Canaan and be a blessing to the whole world, which was the promise that God gave to Abraham. But you do walk away with an uneasiness still, right? If, because we know this, they're called to be holy, they're called to be set apart, they're called to be a blessing to the nations, but as we've been reading the narratives, and you know, if you know the stories of the Old Testament, I mean, they just can't keep it together. And so you do walk away with, I mean, the priesthood sounds like a great solution, a way, a vehicle in which God is going to redeem the Levites who desperately need redemption and redeem the people and ease their conscience and provide a reminder and a means to experience holiness and God's calling and purpose. But what if the priests fail? What if the sons of Aaron and all these Levites don't do their job well? What if the people refuse to follow them? We just read about their epic failure at the beginning of Exodus 32. Why do we have any confidence that they're going to continue and be able to do this well? And as careful readers of the text, right, that's the expectation. We know this is not going to work. You can see God's love and care, but we know ultimately it won't. And we're going to read that next week. We'll see this with Aaron's sons um, are drunk in the tabernacle and get killed. And there's, I mean, 
there's going to be failure right away and all the way through this. So we've got to ask the question, what's the point then? Why would God give a system that doesn't ultimately work or a system in which there's constant failure? Because we see this within the text. We see this within our own lives. Leaders failing, people failing to follow, sin multiplying. And we have to be reminded of the point of all of it. The establishment of the priesthood in Leviticus, in Exodus, and through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, is going to go with the people, the priesthood. The priesthood was never intended to save the people. Right? That wasn't what it was intended for. It was to remind them, instruct them, and bring them back to seeing what would save them. All of the Pentateuch, right, has been about this promised child that one day is going to undo sin and death and evil. All of it ultimately points to Jesus Christ, but throughout the narratives, it's always been pointing us to their true and greatest need because none of this stuff is ever going to work. It's good, the priesthood is good, but it's not going to work if the goal is salvation through the priests because the priests will fail and the people will fail. Every character in the Pentateuch, every story of redemption, every theme, every idea points to Jesus Christ. The people needed a priest, which is really clear in the text. They need priests. They cannot do this on their own. They need someone to intercede for them constantly. Right? And Moses does it. They're given Moses, they're given Aaron, they're given Aaron's sons, they're given the Levites to intercede on their behalf, and it is loving and redemptive on God's part. But they were just placeholders for the true and ultimate priest who was to come to intercede on our behalf, who wouldn't just spill the blood of animals to make atonement, but would spill his own blood for us. The people needed a way to be daily reminded of who God is and of who they were. They needed it desperately. You see that in the text. They need to be reminded. They were given the tabernacle. They were given the priests. This is a physical, tangible, daily image and reminder you will see that you get to enact. You get to go through these motions. You will get to do this to dwell with God and to feel his presence and to ease your conscience, to experience who God is and who you were called to. They were given the tabernacle and the priests. But these were placeholders, right, for Christ and for the church. By being part of God's family and now by experiencing this forgiveness and grace of Jesus Christ and of being part of his church, right, we reenact and remind ourselves of Christ's mediating work on our behalf, of our need for salvation, for our need of a savior. The priesthood was to design, it was designed, right, not to save, but to remind, to remind the priests, those in leadership, those who are interceding daily on behalf of people. That's, that's many of us, right? I mean, this is the structure of the church. Many of us are in positions of leadership where we are shepherding others, caring for people, interceding for people. If you're a parent, you're doing this for your children at least, right, but where you're in this position, you're not in, you're, it's not your job to save. 
You are interceding on people's behalf. You are mediating on people's behalf. You are working to fix what has been broken, the fabric of the shalom that's been broken because of sin. I mean, that's our job. Yeah, absolutely. But it's not meant to save people. Christ in the church reminds us as leaders, those who are shepherds, of our greatest need, of our need for salvation, of our need for someone to mediate on our behalf as well, which is what the point was for the Levites. It wasn't to pump them up or to make them feel they were so great. Now they're going to become a very overconfident tribe as their history is going to go on in this high calling and forget their need of a savior. And it's also meant Right, designed to bring the people into this trust of God and into seeing their need for the Savior. It's not designed to help them to be saved. It was designed to, for us to worship God ultimately. Fear and love. So the call to Israel is really the call to us. God has given us his very self in Jesus Christ and given us his church. And as we worship God for who he is, as we fear the Lord, and become in awe of him and his love and his mercy, which is really what Israel was supposed to do, right? This God has redeemed us, is still with us, has given us his presence, the tabernacle, the priests, Moses is leading us. It instills awe and love of God. For us, it's the same. As we begin to worship God more and more and put our hope and love in him our focus on ourselves diminishes and our hope increases, just like for the people of Israel. When I worship myself, my hope decreases <laughs> and my self increases. But as I worship God, I decrease and my hope increases. As we grow in our love and trust in God's work for us, we grow in confidence and love in our daily lives. The people were to have hope. And for many of us, right, we need to grow in our confidence and in our hope, in our callings, to be a holy and distinct people, to be unlike all the nations. How is this going to work? How can I do these things that God has called us to do? I'm not adequate. You don't know my past. You don't know my weaknesses. You don't know what I've gone through. You don't know the blood that's on my hands, right? And it's like, look at this God who has called you and who has redeemed you and ransomed and rescued you. As we worship God and trust him and see that he has done the work and is doing the work, oh, I grow in my confidence and my hope that I can do this work that God has called me to do. This work of reconciliation, as the New Testament is going to say, to be priests. The New Testament is going to say, we are priests. We are now a nation of priests. Jesus has fulfilled that promise that was given to Israel. This is now us. We are the priests. We are this nation that is to bless the world. And we are called to be holy and distinct, unlike any other people. right? In the way that we love God and in the way that we love other people. But it's not meant to be done on our own strength, in our own ways. But rather, through experiencing this power of God, right, through the Holy Spirit, which comes through this daily reminding 
ourselves, renewing of the mind, the New Testament is going to say, like, this is the church. This is the participation we do as body together, is to be reminded and instructed who God is and who I am. The God I serve is not like all the other gods of this world. The God I serve is not like the gods of money and power, privilege. The God that I serve is loving and just. And I am not like everyone else in this world. I am holy. I am distinct. I have been called out, and I have been given this purpose by God himself, and I have God with me, in me. We find hope and strength to do the work of reconciliation and atonement when we are reminded of who God is and of who we are. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your love and mercy. Lord, we thank you that you are a holy God, that you are not like any other God. You are not vengeful. You do not keep records of wrong. You deal with sin and injustice. Lord, you also bring redemption and you give power and hope and love. Lord, we're thankful that you have sent your son on our behalf to relieve the tension that we feel in our lives, in our conscience, even in the text of how is this going to work out. Lord, we know now how it's going to work out because you paid the price. You made the ultimate sacrifice and work of atonement to put things right. You made peace through the giving of your son. Lord, thank you that you have chosen us as your people. Not a people that are perfect, but a people that are loved. And that you have called us to do this work of reconciliation, of making atonement, of mediating in this world. Lord, we thank you for the calling. Lord, we, uh, we admit to you how often we doubt our abilities. We doubt your power. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we lose hope and we lose faith. Lord, thank you for your spirit that indwells us and that is strengthening us and that knits us together into the church so that we can be strengthened in the gospel and in our hope in you to put off sin and to put on Christ. Lord, strengthen us as a church for this calling that you have given to your people in the culture and the world that we find ourselves to be distinct, to be holy, to be loving unlike any other people because we have been loved like unlike any other people. Lord, strengthen us and help us to worship you for who you are. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our great high priest and mediator who goes before us, Lord, we pray. Amen.